Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. There's a difference between teaching and preaching. I do both of them, but there really is a difference, and there's a distinction between the two. Teaching in the Greek is the word didakos, which means to make simple or clear the truth. And preaching is to call men's attention to that truth. So these broadcasts, I don't want to just preach and call you an attention, call you to the attention of a truth that you're not really understanding. I want to teach and preach. Jesus taught in the synagogues and he preached the gospel of the kingdom. And then the power of God was made manifest to demonstrate that through the healing of every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. And so I want to teach. I want to didacos. What's didacos? It is to make simple to make clear to clarify the truth i want to clarify these truths from the word of god so that you don't just think you don't just know these you know there's a lot of people who they think just knowing or stating i have dominion is sufficient revelation to actually have dominion no you need to know why you have dominion you need to know what dominion means you need to know what the bible says you have dominion over if you want to maximize that dominion or that authority that god has delegated to you as a believer so i want you to pay special attention and with an open heart today to receive from the word I don't, i'm not asking you to receive my word i'm asking you to receive the word i'm just the messenger i'm just the declare i'm just the one to proclaim it the bible says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing but to those that are the call to those that are sealed by the holy ghost to those that are saved and redeemed to those that have said lord i want your word and everything in it like David he said all thy precepts concerning all things I consider to be right I don't consider 50% of this book to be right I don't consider 90% of this book to be right I don't think I don't think I know there is no error in this book there's nothing God said accidentally everything that's in this book is there for a reason and it is inspired and it is God breathed and the Bible says it is profitable for us To have victory in life. God doesn't want you to go through life being slapped around by the devil, dominated by life, having literally no difference in your life uh, from the unbeliever's life. God wants you to reign in life. Romans 5.17, the thing that sparked the series of these broadcasts that I've been doing is Romans 5.17. You know that through the one man's disobedience, the offense came and sin reigned over all. Now much more through the one man's obedience, referring to Jesus, shall we receive grace for life, the gift of righteousness, and the ability to reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. It doesn't say the ability to reign in the etern- in everlasting life. It doesn't say the ability to re- reign in heaven. It doesn't say the ability to reign in the millennium reign of Christ. It's talking about reigning in this life. Remember, Jesus said, whatever you give up for my cause and the gospel's cause, whatever salvation costs you, whatever you had to give up or forfeit as a result of you connecting with God, 
poor relationships. Maybe you had to lose a house. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe whatever you lost. Jesus turned to the disciples because Peter like peeped up and he was like, Lord, I've left everything to follow you. What's in it for me? Jesus didn't reply. One day it's going to be worth it. Jesus replied, I tell you assuredly. In the King James, it says, truly, truly, I say unto you. This is a double truth. This is so true. You should drill it until it's your conscious your conscience it's in your inner conscience jesus says assuredly i say unto you whatever you have given up for my sake and the gospel's sake land property houses mother father brother sister children will in this lifetime receive a hundredfold and in the life to come everlasting life. So he didn't just say that one day it will be worth it in everlasting life. He said in this lifetime, there's something to gain. Godliness is profitable. The Bible says in First, uh, First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7 and 8, bodily training has some value to it, but godliness is profitable in all things. Why? Because it holds promise in the life that now is and in the life to come there it goes again godliness holds profit in the here and in the now god's not just interested in getting you to heaven that might be a revelation for some of you today or it might be a reminder for some of you today god's not just interested in your butt crossing the pearly gates that's that's the objective that's the that's if that's what is all christianity promised is that we'd make it to heaven and have a restored relationship with god there then god man i'd i'd serve god just as strong as i serve him now but remember what romans 8 32 says it says if god did not spare jesus but delivered him up for us all will he not freely give us everything else that we need and desire in life that's according to godliness of course that we might freely enjoy it god God wants you the anointing wasn't given to you to endure life the anointing was given to enjoy life the bible says in john 10 10 it's the thief that comes to steal it's the thief that comes to kill it's the thief that comes to destroy jesus said i have come so that you might have what life and life more abundantly everybody always talks about job they hear a message like this and they say well what about job which by the way tuesday this coming tuesday i have it so strong in my spirit this coming tuesday I'm going to be preaching on what about Job, a biblical study of the book of Job. And you're not going to want to miss that because it's going to help a lot of you, not only for yourself, but whenever somebody comes up and says, what about Job? Instead of giving them an answer like, well, uh, uh, you can actually have a biblical defense that I'm going to give you from the book of Job. Job didn't go through that just because God wanted, you know, he had nothing else on his schedule that day. And he said, you know what? Let me throw a wrench in Job's wheel. That's not why Job happened. I'll get into the the details of it on Tuesday, but in essence, people are always like, what about Job? What about Job? You should read the book of Job. Why don't you read the book of Job and finish the book of Job? The book of Job is literally John 10, 10 in a nutshell. It is the thief, because remember, God didn't take Job's health. Satan took Job's health. Remember, God didn't take Job's prosperity. Satan took Job's prosperity. God didn't take Job's family. Satan took Job's family. And I'm going to get into why he was able to do that on Tuesday, but that's not the point of what I'm saying right now. Satan did those things. But remember, skip forward to Job, Job chapter 40 through 42. And it says God rebuked Job. Because remember, Job said, the Lord taketh and the Lord giveth. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God rebukes Job for speaking like that, saying put a hand to your mouth and gird your loin and come and fight with me if you're able. You who 
pretty much you have spoken foolishly things about me. The book of Job has to be read very carefully because there's a lot of things in it that aren't representative of who God is. Remember Job's friends, they gave him poor advice, poor counsel. Now you start using those scriptures that they gave Job as scriptures you're standing on, you're going to have a hard time in life because even those friends and Job himself got rebuked for bad counsel. And then read the end of the book of Job. When Job prayed for the captivity of his friends, the scripture says the Lord restored Job's captivity and gave him what? double everything he ever lost he had double family double money double health he lived 140 years after that lived a long life full of good days so people that use what about job to like pretty much throw out this message of dominion over sickness disease and everything else i'm going to talk about today they they, they really are ignorant in their statements because the book of job literally shows that the thief comes to steal kill and destroy but when god comes he flips the tables on the devil he restores abundantly he gives abundant life he always restores the years that the locusts have eaten he restores people not back to where they were but to a better level what the devil means as a stumbling block the way you look at it will either make you fall in that stumbling block or rise and use it as a stepping stone to a greater destiny with God so if you're discouraged today if you've suffered of tact if you feel like you're Job today i want to encourage you pay attention to what i'm speaking today because you can either fall where you're at right now and be a victim of defeat and failure and suffer the rest of your life just quoting i must be job i must be job or you can rise up in the word of god and what it says to do to take authority over these things that have challenged you to move on to triumph in all things by christ jesus because you were called not to complain in life you were called to reign in life you are not called to complain in life you were called to reign in life and that's the story you're gonna have no matter how hard life has been since it started it doesn't have to end the same way it started you can do something you can cooperate with god today in light of his word and take charge take control take dominion over the situation and circumstances that you're facing and move on into the great pastures of god's Great plan that he has for you. Five areas the believer should dominate. Five areas the believer should dominate. You know, I quoted it on Tuesday. I'm going to read it very briefly. 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3. Now this, the context, the whole of Samaria had been ransacked by a foreign king and they held them captive they literally blocked every entrance they stopped the flow of water they cut off their food supply they were dying and restore they were resorting to cannibalism they were eating children it was messed up not a good time to live in and so no matter how crazy the world is today it's been crazier trust me second Kings chapter 7 verse 3 now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and they said to one another, remember leprosy was this contagious, infectious disease that they had to remain in quarantine for if they, were, if they had it, because if this broke out, it would kill a lot of people. So they, these four leprous men are in their quarantine cell hearing about all the miserable things happening to Samaria, and this is what they say. Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say... Let's enter the city. The famine's in the city. We're going to die there. If we say, if we sit here, we're also going to die. 
Now, therefore, come, let's surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, then great, we're going to live. If they kill us, we're going to die anyways. And so they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, nobody was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots, the noise of horses, and the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel must have hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore, they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent, they ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered one tent and carried away from there also and went and hid it. And they said to one another, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. But if we remain silent until morning, some punishment will come upon us. This is the story of four lepers at the gate of Samaria. They're in their quarantine cell. They hear about the famine in Samaria. They hear about the torture that they're going through, resorting to cannibalism. And they start to reason within themselves, why should we sit here until we die? If we just sit here, we're guaranteed to die. If we go into the city, we're pretty much guaranteed to die because there's, there's famine there. If we go out, at least perhaps we have the chance that the Syrian commander will let us live. So why sit we here until we die? You have to understand this before you'll ever take charge of anything in life. You have control of your destiny, not God. Now that is going to really tick some religious devils off that one statement because people have been taught that god controls everything that we're that we are robots in his system and whatever he says to do that we do that's what we do and we have no free will no ability to choose no ability to actually think for ourselves that's not the way god wired you it's not the way life works remember in deuteronomy 31 it says i have this day set before you life and death i have set before you blessings and cursings god is speaking and i call all of heaven and earth against you to testify against you oh that you would choose life that both you and your descendants would live so the blessing is a choice life is a choice you can either choose to sit in that low place of life that you find yourself in right now and sit there until you die and complain about your situation until you die and just completely say things like well what uh, when is god gonna do something and complain against god why have you forsaken me why are you doing this to me or complain against the devil and say oh there's the devil's on my back this week the devil's doing all this to me you can complain and blame it on your parent blame it on your friend blame it on your sister blame it on your brother blame it on your employer that's the thing that man has always struggled with from the very beginning in the garden of eden god gave man the choice to obey or to reject obedience they had the choice to choose life and the tree of life or choose the tree what was in the midst of the garden of of uh, of eden which uh, if Eden would be cosmic rebellion against God, it would be sin, it would be disobedience to God. They had the choice to obey and they had the choice to disobey. When they disobeyed, what happened? The man blamed the woman. You gave me this woman. She's the one that got me to eat it. Then the woman blamed the devil. He's the one that got me to do it. Everybody is always blaming something for their mistakes. Instead of saying, there's something I could do. Remember, God's not the problem in your life. He's not the author of storms. He's the obliterator of storms. He's, he is the author of life, not the author of death. He's not the, he's, he doesn't cause decadence. He doesn't cause 
cause people to decay. He causes people to flourish, to multiply. When the presence of God came to Obed-Edom's house, everything he had, everything he touched, multiplied, flourished, it thrived. When you have the presence of God, God's presence was on Joseph's life. Everything multiplied, everything thrived, everything increased. When you don't see those things, you can know that God's not at the other end of that thing. When you see your bank account depleted and you see your health depleted and your strength depleted and your mental health depleted and you feel, woe is me, and you're complaining about everything, you can know that those things you're complaining about, God didn't send them your way. God doesn't tempt people. That's what the Bible says. Never at any time does he tempt people. People are led astray by their own decisions. They're led astray by their own choices. They're led astray by their own, their own, uh, their own refusal to comply with God's instructions and ordinances. So the, God's not your problem. James 1.17 establishes that every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So you should take an evaluation of the things you're seeing in life. Is it good? Is it perfect? No. Then it's not God. Is sickness good? No. Is it perfect? Absolutely not, or else it'd be in heaven. So it's not God. Is poverty good? Is it perfect? No. Heaven's streets are paved with gold. So it's not God. Is, is depression perfect and good? No. Then it's not God. So if it's not God, where is it coming from? The devil. The devil. Satan, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But remember this. The devil's been put under your feet. The Bible says Satan has fallen, has been cast out of heaven, a place where we have our citizenship in and we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. I talked about this on Tuesday's broadcast. I said there's seven things that God says about you. You're born from above. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are of God and the wicked one cannot touch us. We're translated into God's kingdom. We are a royal priesthood. And Jesus told us we have dominion over the devil. And greater is he that lives in us than he that's in the world. So the Bible says God has pretty much removed the problem that Satan caused us. So what does that leave us with? If those things continue to invade your life, it's not God. It's not the devil. It's my refusal to take charge and use the authority that God has given me. I want to repeat this because this struck something in my spirit just now as I read it. I want to repeat this. These are seven things the Bible says about you from the scriptures. Number one, in John 3, you're born from above and above all. Above sickness, above disease. Number two, Ephesians 2, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Number three, 1 John 5, 18 says we are of God and the wicked one cannot touch us. Number four, Colossians 1, 13 says we have been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into God's kingdom, a kingdom of light. Number five, 1 Peter 2, 9, we are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, God's special possession. Number six, Luke 10, 17 and 19 says that Satan has been cast out of heaven and we have power and authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and nothing the devil does will ever be able to harm us. And number seven, 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he that lives in us than he that is in the world. Those are seven Bible facts about you, what you've been made to be in redemption. So now that that's established, God's not the problem, the devil's not the problem, it's my refusal to act on that knowledge that hinders victory for me in life. I want to read this. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1. This is an important verse that I'm sure many people read over and they really don't pay much attention to it. It's like just a verse bunched in with a bunch of other verses. 
But the Lord enlightened this to my spirit recently, and it's changed my life. Because it shows you that not everything that happens to you in life is God. It's not all God. It's not God bringing you through the valley so you can get in the mountaintop like a lot of Christianity teaches. It's not that. It shows you that ultimately the ball's in our court as to what happens in our life. We determine based on our choices to believe or reject God's truth whether we attain the victory or, or not. Galatians 4.1, listen to this. Now I say that the heir, the heir is what? The one who has access to the inheritance, the one who the things have been promised to, the one who has access to the will or the testament of a person. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs not at all from a slave, though he is master of all. But he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Now this I say that the heir, I just told you everything that's our inheritance in Christ, those seven things, you're seated far above, greater is he that lives in you, God before you, who can be against you? God leads us to triumph in all things by Christ Jesus. Ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Uh, thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are of God and the wicked, all those things are your inheritance in Christ. But the Bible says that the heir, as long as he is a child in his thinking, a child in his understanding, he does not differ at all from a slave. So just because you're born again doesn't mean your story is going to change automatically on the earth. Because the Bible says, though you're an heir of every good and perfect gift in heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3 says, giving thanks unto the Father who has blessed us with everything in heavenly places. Just because that's our inheritance, if you're not if you don't understand your inheritance or you have no knowledge of that inheritance or you are ignorant of our redemptive position in Christ, your life's not going to be different at all from those that are still in slavery to sin. That's what this scripture is saying. As long, even if you're an heir, as long as you're childlike in your thinking and you're immature in your understanding of the word of God and the covenant of God, your life will not differ at all from those that are still in bondage to Satan, even though you're a master over Satan. Remember this, any Christian can become a devil master overnight if he would simply come unto the knowledge of his new identity in Christ. Any Christian, doesn't matter if you're a Christian born again last night or you got born again 10 years ago or 50 years ago, you can become a devil master overnight the moment you come into the knowledge of your new identity in Christ Jesus. Bible says in um, Ephesians 1, Paul said, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ would open up your eyes to see the inheritance that's available to you and the surpassing greatness of God's power that is in you and that's available to those that believe. Bible says very clearly that uh, it is because of a lack of knowledge that my people are destroyed. It is because of a lack of understanding that my people go into exile. Not because of God trying to take them through the desert. So, no, God doesn't take people into deserts. 
They always quote uh, Moses in the wilderness with the Israelites. Why did they stay in the wilderness? Was it because they were obeying and they were in right standing with God? No, they fashioned for themselves gods after their own likeness. So God said, because of their rebellion, I made them go around the wilderness for 40 years. And even still, they rejected me. They rebelled against my word. And they hardened their hearts in the wilderness. So he says, today, when you hear this word, don't harden your hearts as they did. Instead, receive it, act on it, and you'll see. You'll be able to taste and see of the goodness of the Lord while yet in the land of the living hallelujah so let's get in it five areas the believer should dominate five areas the believer should dominate so until you understand that you you can't dominate an area you don't even know you're able to dominate in you can't dominate in the area of your physical health against sickness and disease if you don't know the bible promises you that you can't dominate in the area of finances if you don't know the bible promises you that you can't dominate in the area of sin if you buy on to the religious junk that's being spread throughout churches today that how many of you know that we'll never have victory over sin till we make heaven that ultimately we're always going to be in the bondage of something i want you to know we're all just deprived sinners amen no not amen we're not deprived sinners he that knew no sin became sin that i might become the righteousness of god in christ jesus so if you keep confessing those things about yourself you're going to constantly be bound by the things you've been anointed to dominate there's a story that a preacher um, that I like to listen to, he tells all the time, of this old country uh, school that had a big bully in it. And he'd go around bullying people in his class and grabbing them by the neck and asking them for their lunch money. And then one day, he wrote down a list. On, on that list was every name of every single person in the school that he was going to go after. And so this little kid that was like two feet shorter than him found out that the bully had wrote, written a list. So he went up to the bully and he said, I heard that you wrote a list. Let me see that list. And he grabbed the list and he started to go down the list and he found his name on it. He said, hey, that's my name. You can't put my name on that list. I can't be bullied by you. And the bully grabbed it back and he wrote, he scratched out the guy's name and said, okay, you're off the list. That tells you the story, a story. That tells you a, there's, a, there's a lesson to learn there. The devil has a list of every Christian and non-Christian. Christians who don't understand the redemption fully and non-Christians who aren't redeemed. And on that list are all their names. And those are the people that he can harass and bully and torment. But you got to be like that little country boy that grabs that list because of your understanding of the word, scratch your name off it and say, I refuse to be bullied. I refuse to be harassed. I'm to be the head always and never the tail. I'm to be above always and never beneath. I've got the greater one in me. I'm called to triumph in all things by Christ Jesus. And I refuse to sit here till I die. I'm rising up into my inheritance. If you don't have that attitude like that little boy had, you're going to continue to get slapped around. You got you have you your name you can scratch your name off the devil's harassment list today just by understanding these these simple truths that I'm speaking that life doesn't give you what you what you deserve the devil doesn't care about what you think you deserve he doesn't care how you feel he's going to come and do whatever he wants but life will give you what you demand if you don't rise up and demand your rights as a born again child of God 
You just let the devil come in and touch your child with sickness and disease. Come in and touch your, finan your finances with poverty and lack. Come in and touch your business. And come in and touch your family with distress and depression and despair and anger and frustration in your home. Then you'll continue to have a field day in your home. But when you'll do like Jesus did in John 14 when he told his disciples, whatever you demand in my name, I'll bring it to pass from heaven. I will enforce it from heaven. Refuse to be destroyed and rise up and demand what belongs to you by redemption. So these are five areas that you should dominate because you're redeemed. Number one, you should dominate the area of your mind. If you're just tuning in now, you'd do great, great help to me if you shared this broadcast. I don't know why we, we're only at 90 today. You, that's very unusual. Usually we're well past 100 at this point. But let's help that get that number up so we can reach more people. The area of your mind, the number one place that I want to help you by the word of God to dominate today is in the area of your mind. 2 Corinthians chapter five, uh, chapter 10, sorry, and beginning with verse 3. Listen to what the Bible says. For we, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are what? They are not carnal but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds and casting down every argument and high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You will either be captive to your thoughts or take your thoughts into captivity. You will either be confined to the prison cell of your mind or you'll have dominion over the area of your mind and remember i did a broadcast last week on this whatever happens up here is going to determine the course of your life if you let your mind run loose and run rampant and think whatever it wants to think you're going to have a hard time for as a man thinketh in his heart so is he you are what what you are what you think what you think what dominates your thoughts is what's going to dominate your mind. If it's, if it's in here and it dwells in here and you meditate on it and believe it and begin to act on it and talk it, it's what's going to inevitably be manifest or take root in your life. The Bible says that we are in Proverbs 4.24. We are to guard our hearts above everything else. For out of our hearts, out of our minds flow the issues of life. So that scripture alone tells you that you can have dominion over your mind. Your mind makes a terrible slave, a terrible master, sorry. Your mind makes a terrible master, but a wonderful slave. Learn how to enslave your mind to the thoughts of God. Jesus said it this way. For the things that you put in your mouth are not what defile you. But what comes out of your heart is what defiles a man. You will defile your life by the defiled thoughts in your heart. What comes out of the heart? Jesus said evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, adult, uh, all kinds of wicked things. He goes on to say anger and indignation. Those things are what defi defile a man. 
but to eat with unclean hands does not defile a man. So Jesus was inevitably saying, he was reiterating the proverbial wisdom that you are what you think. If you have this boiling in your heart, you're going to start speaking it. And as you speak it, what proceeds out of the heart will defile your living. It'll defile your life. It'll defile everything else. Your thoughts are tied to every department of your life. That's why you can have some people that think Bible thoughts when it comes to healing, but when it comes to financial well-doing and prosperity, they, they think poverty. They think lack. And so they might dominate in the area of physical health, but when it comes to their finances, they're a wreck. There's some people who have strong thoughts on, on salvation, and they know that they know they know that they're saved. The devil can't convince them otherwise. They, they, they don't believe that they've committed the, the unpardonable sin. They haven't been falsely persuaded into thinking that, you know, uh, just because they, they messed up yesterday, they're, they're going to hell in a handbasket. No, they understand that if, I'm, if, if, if I will confess my sin, God is faithful and just. He'll forgive my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So they're strong in the security of their salvation. But then when it comes to physical health, when it comes to d divine healing, they have weak thoughts on that. And so sickness dominates their life. So what do you do? I like to call it, it's a three-step process. You have to identify the lie, identify the lie that you've had and you've believed in your heart, then replace it with the word, and then make a new declaration based on the truth. So what's the lie? The lie is that you can get sick at any time. What does the word say? If you serve the Lord your God, he'll bless your bread and your water and take sickness out of your midst. What is your declaration? I can never get sick because the word of God promises me that there is a hedge of protection around me and sickness has lost my address. So you identified the lie. What's the lie? You're never going to get married. What's the word say? He that finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. What's our declaration? I know that my marital destiny is secure because... I have favor with God, and part of that favor is obtaining a spouse. What's the lie? The lie is, you can die at any time. What's the word say? With long life, I'm going to satisfy you and show you my salvation. What's our declaration? My life will not be cut short by tragedy. My life will not be cut short by misery. I will not die in a car accident. God's will is for me to live a long life and I'm going to live that life because the Bible says I can have it. I will not die young. I will die at a good old age full of good days. What's the lie? Let's go through a, a few more lies. What's the lie? The lie is that you're going to live depressed the rest of your life and you're going to live in fear the rest of your life. What's the truth? God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power, of life, of, of love, and of a sound mind. What's our declaration? I refuse to be afraid. I refuse to fear another day in my life. I'm going to be strong in the Lord. I'm going to be courageous, for I know God is with me. I'm confident that he's with me everywhere I go, and I have a sound mind. I, I will not be depressed, for the good word of the Lord brings joy and rejoicing to my heart. Those are just some simple things. So whenever, this is a very good practice for you to do right now, or, or when, when the broadcast is done. Identify every lie that you've believed, every lie that's caused your heart to sorrow and, 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 and break, everything that's caused you to be depressed and lose hopefulness in God. All those, write them down. Find out a word, a, a scripture from the Bible that deals with that lie. Write down at least three scriptures. Then write down a new declaration of truth. 
something that you're going to confess so that I'm not saying you're never going to have that thought pop up in your head again. But the next time the thought pops up in your head, you now have a tool of dominion to counter that thought with a declaration of truth based on the word of God. Hallelujah. That's why the Bible says when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, the devil came and said, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. What did Jesus say? No, I know I'm the son of God. And that's, you know, that's all that I need to know. No, he countered the lie with the truth. He said, it is written, devil, thou shalt not Live on bread alone. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the devil left him for a little bit, came back with another temptation, another lie. What did Jesus do? He used the same tool, counted it with the scripture. He brought him to the high point of the temple, said to him, cast yourself down. Psalm 91 says, he'll, he'll commit his angels to you to guard you up in all your ways. You'll not even strike your foot against a stone. What did Jesus say? You've twisted the truth. Here, let me give you the actual truth. Thou shalt what? Not tempt the Lord your God. For it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. The devil left him for a second. Then he brought, came back another time. In, in the same fast that he was doing, brought him to an, a high mountain and showed him the glories of the kingdoms that were given to him when Adam sinned. And he said, all these things have been given unto me. Jesus never challenged that statement because it was true. When Adam sinned, he forfeited uh, dominion over the world system to Satan. Jesus heard that word from Satan and said what? It is written. Thou shalt worship. All these things. Satan said, all these things I'm going to give to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. Jesus replied with truth. Thou shalt worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him and the angels came and ministered to him. So you find out. Just three scriptures. Jesus only used three scriptures and that was enough to get the devil off his back. If I'm, I pretty much guarantee it's not the devil himself. Remember, Satan's not omnipresent. Satan is not everywhere at once. But there are demons that might come and try and afflict your mind. The good news is, is if the tool of dominion Jesus used in the wilderness to get the devil off his back worked, then how much more do you think this tool is going to work against all his lower class demons? You don't, you don't have to be dominated by your thoughts. You can dominate your thoughts. Paul said whatever is true. Whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is excellent, whatever is noteworthy and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things and the God of peace will be with you. So that shows you. You have to like use that as a testing system. Is it true? Is it good? Is it noble? Is it pure? Is it excellent? Is it worthy of praise? If, it's not, if it doesn't even fill into one of those categories, I'm not saying seven out of eight. If it doesn't fit into all eight of those categories, then it has no business in your mind. And Paul said you have the power to take that thought and cast it down by the truth. Anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God's word, you have power. Don't let the devil deceive you into thinking that you have no power over your mind. You absolutely have the power to dominate in the area of your mind. You have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Isaiah 55 says, let the wicked man forsake his way and let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. You can forsake poor thoughts and replace them with Bible truth thoughts. Number two. So number one area that you can dominate in from today. And it's important to note, before I move on to number two, you can't change the destination of your life overnight. And the thoughts you've been thinking throughout all these years overnight. But what you can do 
is change the direction you're going in by changing your thoughts. You can change your thoughts right now. You can't change the destination. You can't change what you're seeing right now as a result. You know, what you are today is a product of what you thought yesterday. What you see today is a product of what you thought yesterday, what you spoke yesterday, and what you believed yesterday. And so you might not be able to change the destination of where you're at overnight, but you can absolutely change the direction that you're going in by changing your thoughts today. Today. So number one is the area of your mind. Number two, five areas the believer should dominate is the area of finances. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. You can dominate in the area of your finances. No matter what area, no matter what level you're at financially today, you can move on so that remember, before I move on to anything else, I need to tell you the purpose of dominating your finances isn't so you can live lavishly here on the earth. It's not so that you can have the newest Lamborghini and buy 16 houses overseas in different islands of Greece that you like. That's not the purpose of desiring increase in the area of your finances. The desire, proper desire, proper motivation for multiplication in your finances is because I want to be like Abraham was a blessing to my generation. I don't want to just keep people in prayer that are struggling. I want to be the answer and the solution to those struggles by meeting their needs financially. You know, it's very hard to obey the commandment of Jesus, which is if someone comes to you and asks for you the shirt on your back, you're to take it off and give it to him. If you have no shirt on your back, it's very hard to be generous if you have nothing yourself. It's very hard to meet other people's needs if all you're ever doing is concerned, being concerned and worried about your own needs. Jesus said, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your finances. Don't worry about your body as to what you'll put on. Life is more than clothing. The body is more than food. What does he say? These are the thoughts that dominate the unbelievers. But if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all the things that unbelievers chase after, work nine to five, 40 hour, 50 hour weeks, trying to obtain, I'm gonna give them to you. I'm gonna give them to you. And it's funny because everyone that has a problem with God blessing people financially, they're always, like I had someone comment on my uh, Instagram just before I got onto the broadcast. I posted something. I'll actually read the tweet. I posted something this morning, or sorry, yesterday, that says, if sickness is of God, Jesus spent his entire ministry dis destroying God's work and proceeded to command his disciples to do the same. And then I put two scriptures. The person wrote health and wealth and with vomiting emoji on the comment. Health and wealth with a vomiting emoji on the comment. So I wrote back. I wrote back. I know what awful things to have, health and wealth. As you type this on your $1,000 iPhone and with healthy working fingers and a healthy working brain. And then I, I, I felt to write on Twitter, people will work 50-hour weeks. They will work out an hour five times a week. They will spend untold amounts of money buying vitamins and pills and medication and high-grade food. They will wear eight masks and carry a bottle of Purell everywhere they go and then go on to lecture you on why as a Christian it's wrong for you to believe in health uh, believe God for health and wealth. People will work 50-hour works, work weeks. 
People will work 50-hour work weeks. They will spend an hour at the gym five times a week. Spend money buying medication, pills, vitamins, high-grade food. Wear eight masks and have a bottle of Purell on standby. And then lecture you as a Christian that it's wrong to believe God for health and wealth. That boggles my mind. Makes no sense to me. The, anybody who lives comfortable, there are most people that are against the message of God blessing you financially are people who live comfortably, people who really don't have much needs. They're the type of people that say, God supplied all my needs and that's all that matters. You're so selfish. Selfish. Paul said, no longer look, for, look out for your own interests only. But look out for the interests of others. How could you look out for other people's interests if you're dominated by just scraping up whatever mean, by whatever means you can sufficient stuff to get you through the week? Doesn't make any sense to me. Look at what God said to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those that bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Turn to Genesis 13 verse 2. Just one chapter later. Then Abraham went up from Egypt and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. Verse 2. Abraham, or Abram, sorry, was very rich in livestock, silver, and in gold. So the Bible says Abram wasn't very poor after he started to follow God. He kicked, and you know, Wolf, the secret of Abraham's wealth was his lavish generosity. Abraham was an addicted giver. Let me tell you something. You will never dominate the area of your finances until you understand the secret that Abraham knew and applied in his life. He was an addictive giver. An addicted giver. How do we know that? Well, first of all, when God shows up by the oaks of Mamre in Genesis chapter 15, I believe it is, he refuses to let God even passed by without feeding him. He calls Sarah, get the, go and kill the fatted calf, get the bread ready. Let's, it, God, you're not passing me by until I feed you and until I've blessed you, until I've, I've helped you out, whatever. You know, God was on the earth, pre-incarnate Christ was passing by. And he said, he didn't know it was God at the time, but he said, you're not passing by until I feed you and until I've helped you out. So you see, Abraham had a, a giving mindset. He wasn't trying to hoard. He wasn't saying, oh, I hope that person doesn't come my way. I'd hate to have to, you know, I just saved all this up. That person's a, they're just going to try and bum off me just like everybody. No, he was a giver. The Bible says when God said to give your only son, Abraham didn't even think twice. The very next morning, he rose up early in the morning and took Isaac, his lad, with two other servants. They went to the mountain where God showed him to sacrifice Isaac. And he was about to, he was going to sacrifice Isaac. And the Lord stopped him in his tracks and said, Now that I, do, I know that you haven't withhold your most prized possession, Isaac, I'm going to bless you. And in multiplying, I'm going to multiply you. It put a sworn covenantal prosperity blessing on Abraham the moment he refused. The moment Abraham refused 
to hold back his best, but he freely gave his best. That put a sworn covenantal prosperity blessing on Abraham's life. And he, con he continued to flourish and flourish hard. That in Genesis chapter 24 and verse 35, listen to this. This is near the end of Abraham's life. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 24 and verse 35. And so, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly. He has become great. He has given him, God has given him flocks, herds, silver, gold, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. God had blessed Abraham and he became great. Listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 28. And I want to remind you before I move on to anything else, Galatians 3 says, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Isn't it funny? You know, I've, I've, I've always wondered this because you have Christians that when they hear about the wealth of Jewish people, which by the way, if you look at any nation, the Jews are always in the top 1% in terms of, of wealth. Look at every major uh, company, Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook. Uh, he's a Jewish man. You look at, um, I think Jeff Bezos is Jewish. If I'm mistaken, then sorry, but I'm pretty sure he's Jewish and that's Amazon. You look at, you look at the, the people that, I think the, the percentage is 48% of Nobel Prize winners are Jewish people, which comprise of less than 1% of the world's population. So you have 48% 40 of the society's greatest contributors being Jewish people who comprise less than 1% of the world's population. They're like 15 million or 18 million or something like that. How is that possible? Because they believe in the blessing of Abraham. They believe themselves to be children of Abraham. They know that that blessing belongs to them. Well, the New Testament says if you're Christ, you're Abraham's seed and the true heirs of what God promised Abraham. The Bible says we are blessed with believing Abraham. Read Galatians 3 uh, after this broadcast. Let, let me read it now. Forget after this broadcast. Let's read it right now. So why can I read Abraham's story and say that that's exactly what, I, what belongs to me? That's exactly what I should have. That's exactly what is my inheritance. Because look at what Galatians chapter 3 says. Galatians 3, therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the work of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know only that those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Doesn't say curse, blessed. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Read the curse of the law. Part of the curse of the law is poverty. Part of the curse of the law is the heavens being shut over your head. Part of the curse of the law is enemies coming in and devouring your crops. Deuteronomy 28 verses 15 through 58 describes that. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Part of it being the curse of poverty. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 14, what, we've been redeemed from the curse of poverty, but we've also been redeemed into what? The blessing of Abraham, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Hallelujah. And then 
Verse 26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to what God promised Abraham. Which we read it. If you will serve me, Abraham. If you'll go into the land that I show you. I will what? Bless you and make you great. Genesis 24, 35 shows the fulfillment of that at the end nearing the end of his life the servant of abraham testifies saying my master abraham has become very great and god has given to him isn't it funny how the church the devil sorry has successfully convinced people in the church get this pay special attention to what i'm about to say isn't it funny that the devil has successfully convinced people in the church that prosperity is from satan and poverty is from God. When the Bible clearly says Abraham's prosperity, the source of Abraham's prosperity was God, and the source of Job's poverty was Satan. I mean, it, it really boggles my mind. Listen to Deuteronomy 28, another proof that the source of prosperity, I mean, Psalm 35, 27 says, the Lord has pleasure in the prosperity of his servants. God wants to prosper you so you can be a great blessing to those around you. God wants to prosper you so that the next time a crusade needs to be done in your, in your city, in your region, you don't have to look, color in a red thermometer for 19 months and not, not even get to the top. Pretty much get halfway and abandon the project. Instead, you have resources now that when someone wants to do a crusade, the church you go to wants to do a crusade, you can open up your checkbook, write up the, the amount, sow it into the gospel, and see people's lives change, transformed by the power of the gospel. Isn't it funny? Well, I have all my needs met. Selfish. So you don't care for other people's needs to be met? Do you know that we as a ministry, we sow continually into a ministry called feed the hungry that because of our, the abundance god has given us we're able to give more than ever before to sow it into people children overseas christians overseas that don't have money you can't give lavishly and abundantly when you have penury you need abundance to give abundance paul said people always say well paul was poor actually paul said my god shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory actually paul said god is able to make all grace abound to us so that we have a sufficiency for all our needs we have enough for us to live and an abundance to meet other people's needs an abundance for every good work it's not enough just to carry enough for you to get your stuff together i want to help people I want to see my generation shaken by the power of God in the gospel. I want this gospel to hit the four corners of the earth. I want to be able to write checks for missionaries. That wherever they're at, I can send them money. They don't have to worry about praying for money. They can worry about praying for souls in the region that they're getting and reaching. That's what prosperity allows you to do. Prosperity allows you. To instead of praying for money all the time, you can actually pray for what matters in the sight of God, which is lost, dying, sighing, crying humanity. You can actually pray for lost souls. You can actually pray for the redemption of people to come to Christ. You can actually pray for the gospel to go out. You can actually fund the gospel going out. That's what prosperity allows you to do. So don't get around these religiously brainwashed people who, by the way, they don't even put a dime in the 
in the offering bucket. Whenever the church sends an offering, the offering bucket around, they don't even put a dime. And then they want to lecture you on, you disqualified yourself. And you know what's crazy? Man, I'm getting heated. You know what's crazy? Most of these people that write books in the Christian faith on prosperity, why it's wrong and why it's, it's not godly and that poverty is piety, go look at their net worth. Millions of dollars they've made writing books telling other Christians they should stay poor while they feed I can name you some ministers that have several homes. Can name you some ministers that have, they write books against prosperity. They own several homes. So they're either hypocrites or they're crazy liars trying to take a piece. I've never met someone against prosperity that doesn't want to bite a chunk out of someone else's prosperity. I've never met anybody against prosperity that is not actively seeking to take a bite out of someone else's prosperity it's it, it's it, it boggles my mind deuteronomy 28 this is what god said if you will diligently hear and obey the voice of the lord your god to observe everything that he's told you to do and you know what I'm so happy I'm covering this today because it's long overdue. There's too many preachers that will shy away talking like this. What if I offend someone? What if they label me as a prosperity preacher? Label me as a prosperity preacher. I'm much more for prosperity than poverty. What do you want me to call myself a poverty and sickness teacher? These health and wealth preachers. Yeah, I'm health and wealth because Jesus gave health and Jesus, the Bible says, died part of it was to redeem us from the curse of the law part of that curse is poverty so if you want to label me as a health and wealth gospel preacher then go ahead the apostle john in third john verse 2 says beloved i pray that you may prosper and be in good health even as your soul prospers he didn't say beloved even though you're poor and sick what matters is that your soul prospers he said i pray the apostle john said, I pray that you would prosper and be in good health so that your, your soul, and, sorry, even, even as your soul prospers. So he said, You're, you prospering and being in good health, is, you don't, don't neglect one and the other. Your soul prospering is of utmost importance. But very important is that your, your, your health and your wealth is prospering too so you can be effective in the world that you live in. Deuteronomy 28.1, if you'll diligently hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God, he'll set you high above all the nations of the earth. All of these blessings will come on you and overtake you because you have obeyed the voice of the Lord. These guys, these guys make it sound like if you obey God to give, that he'll give you prosperity in return. I'm sorry, did I write Deuteronomy 28? Did I write Philippians 4? Did I write... Uh, Jesus' statement when he said, give and it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, in good measure, falling over into your lap. Did I write Malachi 3 that says, and God said, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings, give, bring back the tithes and the offerings in my storehouse and see if I will not open up to you the treasures of heaven and pour you out in abundance so you have no room to take it all in. Did I write that? No. God wrote that. Quit being offended by prosperity while you enjoy prosperity yourself. People are so crazy to me. Crazy. Anyways, 
Deuteronomy 28, all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. So I'm talking about dominion in the area of finances. A lot of people give the excuse, well, I'm poor because of where I live. I'm poor because this is where I was born. Actually, the scripture says the blessing will get you in the city. The blessing will get you in the country. The blessing will get you in a village in Africa, just like David Oyedepo had. He was a poor man in Africa, and he started to believe and act on these principles of prosperity and God catapulted him into realms of untold prosperity where now he's the richest man uh, the richest pastor in all on all of earth and not because he's taken offerings from others that's not why he got his riches it was because of good business endeavors it was because of good business choices and 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 the Lord has blessed him supernaturally Enoch Adeboye who has a net worth of a hundred million today started off at 18 years old when he went to graduate he had no shoes for his graduation ceremony he had to borrow a suit and he had to borrow shoes to walk the stage at his graduation ceremony one service he was listening to a minister that said if you will empty your bank account now i'm not saying this to any of you today so this is not this is not the purpose of the story he said if you will empty your bank account and uh and and bring it next week if the lord speaks to you to do it empty your bank account bring it next week I believe the needs that we have will be met uh, and God will bless you for it. He went home, him and his wife, they discussed it. He emptied his bank account, whatever he had, brought it the next week. The following week after that, the pastor got up and said, brethren, God bless everybody. Our need has been met. I just want to ask, how many of you truly acted on what I said, emptied their, emptied their bank account and brought the proceeds to, 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 to meet the need that we had? His hand went up and his wife's hand went up. They were the only two in the entire building whose hands went off, went up. The Lord spoke to him in that very moment and thundered in his spirit and said, My servant Adeboye, because you were willing to do what nobody else was willing to do, I'm going to bring you to a level that nobody else will be able to experiment, experience themselves. Because you were willing to do what nobody else was willing to do in this, in this congregation, I'm going to bring you to a level where nobody else in this congregation will ever taste and see. His lavish giving produced lavish blessing in return. And, the, and he was in poor, dirt poor bush Africa. In a, in a bush area of Nigeria. He wasn't in Lagos. He, wasn't, he was in a bush area of Nigeria. And the God still... Funnel the blessing his way because it doesn't matter. Don't let the devil deceive you that if you were in a different city, you'd finally be blessed. If you were in a different part of the country, you'd finally have prosperity. No, if you're poor and keep a mentality of poverty in the place you're at, even if he put you in New York City, even if he put you, even if he put a million dollars in your hand because of a poverty mindset, you'd be poor in a couple of minutes. It's not about where you're at. It's about what's in you and the actions, the prosperity actions that you're taking to unlock the treasures of heaven in your life. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body. Blessed shall be the produce of your ground. The produce of your ground. That's talking about the increase of your fields, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flock. Blessed shall, you be, shall your basket be. That's your wallet. And your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before your face. They'll come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command a blessing on you, on your storehouses, and into all to which you set your hand. So it's important. It's not just confessing prosperity that brings prosperity. It is you confess it, you believe it, and you act on it get to work God doesn't bless lazy people 
You, you've heard the scriptures, you've given, now ask God for a plan of action, something you can work, some innovative idea, creative idea, so that you can work these things so he can create and generate wealth through you. Don't be lazy. In all to which you set your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. The Lord himself will establish you as a holy people, a holy people to himself, just as he sworn to if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Verse 10, then all the peoples of the earth will see. So the blessing of God is not just something we have in our hearts and cherish deep down within us. You know, the blessing of God's not really in material possessions and all that. It's about having peace in your heart. I don't deny that having peace in your heart is a huge part of the blessing of God. But remember, Proverbs 10, 22 says, the blessing of the Lord maketh a man rich and he adds no sorrow to it. So people say, well, if prosperity was God's blessing, why does the wicked world have it? Let me tell you something. There's a lot of wicked people who have a lot of material wealth. And I'm not saying prosperity is just having material wealth because if it was only having material wealth, we'd be in the same category as they are because they, have, they might be financially wealthy, but they're miserable in their hearts. There was a street near my house growing up. They had the, uh, the biggest street in my city, the biggest house in my city. They were uh, a, a neurosurgeon and a lawyer in the home and they had kids but their kids were on hooked on drugs wanting nothing to do with with the family they lived in separate parts the father and the mother lived in separate parts of the home they never even came together so they had all the money in the world they can go and take a plane anywhere they wanted to but they didn't even want to do it together what good is it if you have a ferrari a, what good is it if you have a huge house if you don't even want to sit next to the people that dwell in that house you don't can't even watch a movie get through a three-hour movie or two-hour movie or a half an hour show because you irritate each other and there's no peace in your home so i'm not saying prosperity is all in wealth but i am saying that it's not all just in in peace and joy there's a huge level of prosperity that comes to you in your your ability your or your wealth or your 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 level of finances the bible says it's a blessing that you'll be able to see not feel only they'll see what are they seeing? They're seeing their herds multiply. They're seeing their cattle flourish. They're seeing their grounds produce increase. You go to Israel today, first of all, for thousands of years, Israel, the physical area, the, the land of Israel was not in Israel's occupancy. It was in a, a foreign occupancy. For ye thousands of years, it was desert. Desert. Nothing grew there. Israel took over uh, that land in 1948. Since then, the, the greatest produce the healthiest produce the largest produce the the most juicy fruits come from the land of israel today it's it's the fertile the most fertile land in all of earth what do you think that is that's the blessing of god coming upon the israeli people just like he said he would do bless you in the land which the lord your god is giving you and the Lord will grant you plenty of goods. And another translation, it says, the Lord will grant you plenty of prosperity in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord your God swore to give you. He'll open to you his good treasure, the heavens, and give rain to your land in its season to bless all the work of your hand. You will lend to many nations. You'll never borrow. I feel like there's some people, you've been dominated in this area of finances the devourer has come and chewed up your money and as such you're always borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and you've accumulated this crazy amount of debt i'm here to tell you today you can actually sow a seed i'm not saying sow it today or here i'm just saying the principle of 
prosperity is given, it shall be given unto you. You can actually sow a seed. I'm not saying get yourself into more debt and put it on your credit card. I'm saying whatever you have in your hand, you can sow a seed that will generate a return that will break the debt that you're in. Break the back of poverty that's kept you down. And you'll march out of the realm of lack and into the realm of abundance. And from today, that's what I did in 2012. I was, I had so much debt, just got saved, debt accumulated from a past lifestyle. I took a, a, an iPhone, that was the only thing I had. I sold my iPhone, the cash that I had, I sold it into the gospel. When I sold it into the gospel, it wasn't but three months later, I, took, I sold it for $300, that iPhone. When I sold it, wasn't but three months later, I had, and I kid you not, and I can get into the detail in another broadcast, but a $30,000 return came back. That's exactly what Jesus said. Some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. 300 times 100 is 30,000. I reaped a 100-fold blessing by sowing that seed. And since then, I have never gone back into debt. I have not gone back into uh, borrowing, I've not gone back into, into this beggar state, always wanting people to help me and help. Now I've been the one helping. I've been the one blessing. I've been the one sowing into other people's lives by the grace and the power and the covenant of God and by that grace alone. So I'm here to tell you, you can flip the, you can flip the table off poverty today and enter into the realm of prosperity where it's not you going around like a beggar asking for uh, lunch money. You actually own the restaurant. You know what I'm saying? I heard a preacher say when we started out, we had, we had me and my wife had to believe God for a sandwich and we split the sandwich. Now I have money to buy the bakery. That's exactly the, the level God wants to take you to. Hallelujah. Deuteronomy 28. And the Lord will cause you to lend to many nations and you'll not borrow. You'll be the head only and not, and not the tail. You'll be above only and never beneath. So that, that shows you that God's the source of prosperity. Number two, the area of finances. Number three, the area of health. Five areas the believer should dominate. The area of health. I want to read this story. And I know I took a lot of time on finances but it had to be said because i i haven't spoken on it in a long time acts chapter 28 listen to this this is paul exercising his dominion over sickness and disease now when they had escaped they found out that the island that was uh, they were on was called malta and the natives showed us unusual kindness for they kindled the fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a, a viper came out, of, came out of the fire and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging on his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he's not escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. He shook the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were suddenly... However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm... Uh, they no harm come to him. They changed their minds and said that he was a god. 
In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. So Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those who were on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They were, And they also honored us in many ways, and when they, we had departed, they departed. They provided such things as were necessary. Two ways Paul exercised dominion over sickness and disease in this one story. Number one, a venomous viper fastens on his hand, injects a poisonous sting into him, a poisonous substance. What does Paul do? They were expecting him to fall down dead. But remember, Mark 16 says, they, you'll pick up deadly serpents and it will not harm you. When that serpent fastened on his hand, Paul already remembered that scripture, that, that verse, that thing that Jesus had already told him as a promise that if a deadly serpent comes on you, it's not going to harm you. So he shook it off and then he continued doing what he was doing. They waited a long while expecting him to die, but he didn't die. Why? Because he had dominion in the area of his physical health. He wasn't worried about dying. The Bible doesn't say, and Paul quickly took up a piece of paper and wrote out his will. And he said, deliver this to my friends and family. He didn't do that. He shook the thing off and he got back to building the fire. They were expecting him to die. Paul had full expectation that he'd live. Because he had dominion in this area. The second area that we see Paul exercising dominion here is when he goes into Publius' house, sees him lying there with a fever and dysentery. What does he do? He goes and lays hands on him. Why? Mark 16 says, In my name they will lay hands on the sick and the sick shall recover. Jesus didn't say, In my name you should at all costs avoid anybody that's sick lest they should infect you or lest it should be contagious. He said, In my name you're going to dominate sickness and disease your hands are going to be registered weapons in heaven that on whomsoever you lay your hands on the sickness in them is going to die not the sickness jumping on you what's in you is going to jump on them and break the hold of sickness and disease in their life so what happened he lays hands on them the guy gets healed publius gets healed testimony goes around the whole island after that listen to this so when this was done the rest of those on the island who had any diseases came and were healed. I want you to get a special a picture of this. Paul enters into a disease-stricken island, and in less than like three verses, the disease on that island leaves, and health dominates the island through the ministry of Paul. Paul shows up. He sees the island's been given over to sickness and disease. In less than a few verses, the whole island, there's not one person that has any sickness or disease through the ministry of Paul. Well, you know that what was in Paul's in you. Do you know not that the spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead also lives in you and he quickens your mortal body? And he doesn't only quicken your mortal body, he'll actually, through your hands, quicken other people's mortal bodies? Don't run around thinking you can get sick at any time. Oh, it's flu season. Oh, it's this season. Oh, it's that season. Oh, there's a virus going around. A thousand can die to my side, 10,000 in my right hand. They shall never, ever come near my, my tent or my dwelling place. Listen to this. I quoted this at the beginning of the broadcast. It's a tweet I put on earlier this week. If sickness is of God, 
So most people don't take authority in the area of sickness and disease because they think sickness is of God. They think that sickness is, a God is on the other end of their sickness, that he's the author of sickness. But let me, you know, it's very important that you think through your doctrine. Don't just accept doctrine. Paul commended the Thessalonians because, they, or the, sorry, the, the Berean Christians because they were more noble-minded in that they received the word of God and studied the scriptures to see whether these things were so. So they didn't just chew down everything the preacher said. They studied the word to see whether it was so. They thought through the doctrine. They, they, they thought through. They reasoned with their doctrine. Listen to this. If sickness is of God, then Jesus spent his entire ministry destroying God's work. And he proceeded to command his disciples to do the same. Because Luke 9.2 says he sent them to preach the kingdom and heal the sick. And Acts 10.38 says Jesus went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed by the devil. So if sickness was God's will, then uh, Jesus obviously worked in direct opposition to the will of the Father. Because everywhere he went, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cleansed the lepers. The Bible says, and the people of the land, when they heard of Jesus, they came and brought them all that were sick. And any that had any need of healing were healed on the spot. As they touched them of his garment, they were made perfectly whole of whatever affliction they had. So if sickness was God's will, then Jesus was living in total sin his entire ministry. But the fact that he went to destroy sickness wherever he found it shows you that sickness is what? The work of the devil. For the Son of God was made manifest to destroy the work of the devil. And remember, we are of God and the wicked one cannot touch me. So that tells you, you shouldn't be... You shouldn't be living in fear of sickness. You should be living confidently. Not only See, I don't preach that if you get sick, God will heal you. Because although it is true, if you do get sick, God will heal you. But I preach, I preach the standard of the word that says we're of God and the wicked one doesn't even have access to put sickness on you. This home has a hedge. Remember when the devil wanted to access Job, he couldn't even get to him because there's a hedge of protection around him and I can't even put him, make, sick, make him sick even if I wanted to make him sick. Well, that hedge of protection was based on Job's righteousness, which was faulty. Because he wasn't perfect. He was blameless, but he wasn't perfect. The hedge of protection that's placed around our lives and around my family and around my children is what? Based on Christ's righteousness. It is eternal. It is set in place. It is, it is immovable. The blood of Jesus under the old covenant was able to thwart off the agent of destruction in the land of Egypt so that every Israelite came through untouched. And the Bible says, not even a dog shall bark its mouth against the children of Israel because they have the mark of the blood. I've got the mark of the blood of Jesus on me. That hedge of protection allows me to stay protected no matter what comes on the earth, no matter what transpires in this generation, no matter if the cancer rate goes from one in three to one in two to one in one. I know that not a bar dog will bark its mouth against me. I know that no agent of destruction shall ever permeate the dwelling place of my home because the blood serves as a neon red glowing sign you have to pass over. So I don't just believe that God will heal when I, if, if, if I get sick. I believe I don't even have to get sick. I don't have to even taste of that. I can taste and see of the Lord's goodness, which is health, health and strength. And not only that, I dominate. Look at P Peter. Peter, not only, there's no record of the disciples getting sick. There's no record of Jesus ever being sick. There's no record of the disciples ever even getting sick while they were with Jesus. And Peter, he wasn't just like going around staying healthy himself. His shadow falling on people was healing people. That's not just 
I believe God to keep me well in divine healing. That's, I know I dominate sickness and disease everywhere I go. When you start to think that way, you'll have the same results Peter had. Look at Jesus. Jesus could not even tolerate sickness in his presence. He goes into Simon Peter's house and his mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever. Nobody even asked Peter. Uh, nobody even asked Jesus. He saw her there looking like that and he couldn't stand the thought of her staying sick. And he came and the light in him drove out the darkness of sickness out of her. The light of this truth, of your position and redemptive position in Christ that allows you to partake of the inheritance of dominion over sickness and disease when you understand that, when you think on it, and when you walk in it, that light in you is going to drive out the sickness in others. In Jesus' mighty name. Remember, by His stripes, we are healed. Number four area that we're to dominate, the believer is to dominate, is in the area of demons. Demons and Satan himself. Luke chapter 9. Let me, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Thanks for joining me today. If you just joined in now or tuned in recently and you haven't shared the broadcast, help me by sharing this. If you're on YouTube and you haven't liked it and you, you like the content that's, that, that I'm preaching on today, please do uh, click like and uh, comment as much as you want. It does help us. Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, the 70 returned with joy. What did they return from? Luke 10, 1 says he sent them out two by two into every city that he was about to go. And Luke 9 says he gave them power of unclean spirits. So listen to this. They returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I give you authority to trample, not to battle, to trample, there's too many Christians that are battling devils. God never said battle devils. He said trample on devils. There's three categories of Christians. And if you're a student of this broadcast, you've heard me say this before. But for those that are new, I'm going to repeat it. Number one, the category of Christian that... Actually, let's say there's four categories of Christian. Number one is the category of Christian that doesn't even believe there is a devil. They just think everything's bad luck or whatever. Number two is the category of Christian that they're afraid of the devil. Everything that happens in their life that's wrong, they blame it on the devil and they just try to avoid him. Number three category of Christian is those that believe that there is a devil, believe that they do have power over the devil, but they feel like they have to battle the devil to obtain the victory. They feel like they have to wrestle with it. They have to like pretty much arm wrestle the devil to obtain the victory. But number four category of Christian and that's what I am and I know that's what you are and if it's not this is the category you're going to enter in today is those that understand their absolute superiority over the devil that we have supremacy over the devil that we are above the devil that we're not on the same playing field that we're not uh, we're not in the same league I've been connected with Christ the nature of Christ is in me and the same authority Christ had over the devil is the same authority that I have and I'm going to exercise over the devil that's why you have some people that when a demon manifests they spend three hours trying to go through deliverance sessions trying to you know is there um, you got to recant this you got to recant that you got to recant that oh devil let me know your name so i can cast you out i don't care what its name is because i know his name i don't care what the demon's name is because i know jesus's name when i cast out a demon i don't care if it's greed or poverty or whatever sickness disease i don't care if it's anger or lust 
All I know is that there is a name that is above every other name. That at the mention of the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord unto the glory of the Father. That's why when I've cast out demons, which I have many times, it's never taken long. I can tell you a few seconds and that ugly thing is out because I have the understanding that the devil is subject to me. I'm not subject to him. I'm not under his feet. He's under my feet. I don't go by what he says. He goes by what I say. Just like in an, in an organization, organizational structure. What do we have here? We have the president. We might have a CEO or whatever. But then at the lower levels, you have salesmen or you have maybe regional managers. The regional manager is not going to the president and telling him what he thinks the company should be run like. It's the president that's giving the orders to the regional manager. In the same vein, in the chain of life, we're at the top of the chain. The devil's at the bottom of the chain. He's not giving instructions to me. I'm giving instructions to him as to where he should go. Understand this. This is going to shock you. Maybe you didn't know this. In the book of Acts and throughout the epistles, there is not one prayer made concerning the devil. Not one time does the early church get together and say, Father, we just bind Satan in this region. Not one time. You know what they prayed? Father, give us boldness to speak your word with all authority and confidence. They didn't pray about the devil. Although the devil is your only scripturally acknowledged enemy, that he's behind shortcomings in life, he's behind anything that's... Um, stealing, killing, or destroying, the early church never prayed about the devil. The early church exercised the authority in the name of Jesus over the devil. Acts chapter 3, there's a man that's lame at the gate called Beautiful. That paralysis was caused by Satan. We know that because the Bible says Jesus went about doing good, healing all oppressed of the devil. So that paralysis was an oppression of the devil. What did Peter and John do? Father, we just pray that this demon would leave his... No, in the name of Jesus, we command you to get up and walk. And they seized him by the hand and ripped him up. And immediately his ankle bones were strengthened. So they exercised the authority based on what they knew Christ made them to be in redemption. And when they did that, the devil backed off for free. When you pray about the devil, he's, out, he's there, amen, in your prayers. Amen. Amen. When he craps his pants, and forgive my French, but is when you start to, when you cease praying about him and you start taking action and authority against him. When the devil sees you pray about him and pray about what he's doing in your life, he laughs and he'll amen that prayer. When the devil sees you get out of prayer and start taking action and authority against what he's trying to do in your life, that's when he craps his pants and has no nothing to do but to leave that's when he backs off for free that's when he runs from you as in terror resist the devil doesn't say pray about him it says resist the devil and he will flee the bible says luke 10 18 i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven and i give you authority to trample trample the bible says in romans chapter 16 and the god of peace will trample 
or crush Satan under your feet. That word crush there is a, a military word called centribo. Centribo is a, mili a Roman military word where they used to tell their soldiers, the centurion would cry out centribo as they were approaching their enemy. What that meant was they now had to lift their feet up as high as they could and trample as hard as they could because under the Roman uh, feet were spike-like shoes. They had spikes under their shoes. And so when they would uh, trample or when they would, would lift their feet up and hit as hard as they could to the ground, anything that got under them, even if it survived the blow of the sword, it didn't survive the blow of the, 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 the spikes in their feet piercing through their bodies and their flesh. And so they were trampled under their foot. Paul said in Romans 16, I think it's verse 20, the God of peace will centribal the devil under your feet, meaning crush him, meaning deal a death, a deadly, uh, painful blow over and over again until he's nothing, until he's literally exterminated. Hallelujah. You have dominion over devils. And even if you're the smallest, you feel like the most insignificant part of the body of Christ. The Bible says, rejoice not that you have the demons subject to you. Rather, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So if your name is written in heaven, if you're born again, you can know that you know that the devil has no authority over you, but you have authority over him. He's subject to you. You're not subject to him. Number four, the area of demons. And I said it before, every Christian can become a devil master overnight simply by absorbing this truth. And number five, and I'm going to finish with this, the number five area that you can have practical dominion over in life is the area of sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. This is what the Bible says. You can dominate in the area of sin. I don't care what some preachers have said. How many of you know we sin every day? How many of you know we'll never stop sinning till that day comes? How many of you know none of us are perfect? They just say that because they probably have some secret sin that they're living out. And they want to like make you comfortable in sin. Let me remind you. Let me make this very clear to you. Any doctrine that makes you comfortable in sin or make sin more palatable to you, is a doctrine that is birthed in hell, and Satan is its author. It is a doctrine of demon that the Bible says would come and permeate the earth in the last days and even into the church. So this is how Paul describes how our uh, view on sin should be. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin, notice how it doesn't say we're alive to sin, it says we're dead to sin. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should live or walk in newness of life. 
For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly now we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, Romans 6, 6, knowing this, our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin it might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. I want you to write that in the comment section. I am not a slave of sin anymore. I am not a slave of sin anymore. The Bible says, we who, for he who has died to sin has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we, belie, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he did, he did, he, the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. So the Bible says the complete opposite of what North American Christianity tells you. That how many of you know we all have sin in us and we all have a sinful nature? Paul says the complete opposite. You shouldn't reckon yourself as having, recognize yourself or identify yourself as having a sinful nature, but you should identify yourself as being dead to sin and alive to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign or dominate in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, pay special attention. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under law, but you are under grace. Don't you know that to whom you present yourself as slave to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thanks be unto God that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine from which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became a slave of righteousness. So for all those people that say, we all sin every day, it's impossible to stop sinning, you're always gonna sin, they have to have ripped out Romans 6 from their Bible or they never read it. Because the Bible says, sin should no longer reign in my mortal body. Sin should no longer dictate my actions. That sin nature, see that's the beauty of the cross. The Old Testament never dealt with the sin nature. Romans 8 says it was not possible in the flesh for us to be delivered from the law of sin and death. But what was impossible in the flesh, Christ came and did for us in the flesh, having condemned sin in the flesh. The Old Testament couldn't deal with the sin nature. The New Testament, through the blood of Jesus Christ, He didn't just forgive my sins, He gave me remission of sins. He, he has extracted the sin nature from within me that now He that knew no sin became sin, that instead of sin reigning and ruling in my life, the law of life in Christ Jesus, the law of righteousness, now rules in me. I'm no longer a slave to sin, 
I'm a slave to righteousness. What does that mean? The drive that I used to have to go to clubs, I now have to go to church. The drive that I used to have to roll up joints, I now have to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. The drive that I used to have to look at all kinds of of unholy things on my TV screen or whatever and listen to all kinds of unholy things in my ears, I now have to look and study in this book of liberty and to hear the voice of the Holy Ghost speaking to me. The drive that I used to have in using my legs to take me to bars and all kinds of nasty places, I now have in taking my feet to the far corners of the earth shed with the gospel of peace to preach this glorious gospel of salvation. I'm not ruled by sin, I'm ruled by Christ. And where I go is where he tells me to go. That's not to say that I've never made a mistake since I came to Christ. But I don't identify with a sin nature. The nature of sin has been taken. Why do we know that? If you're really born again, you don't have a desire to sin. If you do screw up, it's because you messed up that one time. But you pick yourself up. And you ask God who's faithful and just to forgive you of sin and to cleanse you from the unrighteousness caused by that sin. He's the advocate we have before the Father. He purifies us, but then he purges the sin. So the true prayer of repentance is not just, Father, I'm sorry. The the true prayer of repentance is, Father, I repent of that sin. I desire never to do it again. It disgusts me. It disturbs me. And I ask you now for grace to live in holiness in this particular area. And God will give it to you. There are many things that I I didn't have victory over when I first came to Christ. I have victory over those things. Why? Because I'm not dominated by sin, by the power of the life of Christ in me. I'm able to dominate sin. Sin's not living in victory over me. I'm living in victory over sin. Jesus said you can have dominion over sin. He said if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He's not saying like literally to remove your eye and cast it. He's saying you have, I've given you power that whatever you're looking at that's causing you to sin, you can look the other way. You don't have to, you know, don't flirt with sin. Don't try and dip your feet and your toes in the pool of sin because the devil will push you overboard. Stay as far. Don't travel on the way of evil. Don't look at it. Don't move in that direction. Turn away from it and pass on. And you have power to do that. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If there's something you're doing in life that's causing you to to have a hard time breaking free from sin, places you're going, stop going to those places. Stop doing those things. Move the other way. The Bible says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor does he stand in the path of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. What is he saying? Blessed is the man who doesn't listen to ungodly counsel, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk with ungodly men. And blessed is the man who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, of ungodly people. So you can, people say, well, I can't control it. You can absolutely control it. By not walking with the friends that you walk with now. By not sitting with the people that you sit with now. And by not listening to the counsel from the people that you're listening to counsel from. It's very easy. David said, I have kept a firm watch over my spirit and over my heart. And he said it, he said um, in Psalm 101, I will behave perfectly. He said, I will. It's a matter of your will. I will behave perfectly in a perfect way. He said, I'll set nothing wicked before my eyes. Those who are liars in my presence, I'll cut them off from my life. 
Go read Psalm 101. It's a powerful scripture. Let me read it right now. Psalm 101. Because it shows you that your victory over sin is dependent on you cooperating with God's power and grace. Grace, get this, grace is not an exemption to keep on sinning. Grace is not your flash pass that you show God, hey, remember the cross? Yeah, so don't bother me while I sleep with this person that's not my spouse. Don't bother me while I look at pornography. Don't bother me when I'm drinking myself into a stupor because I've got the flash pass of grace. That's not what grace is. Grace is a spiritual power that comes on you to go and sin no more. And we know it's possible to go and sin no more because Jesus said, go and sin no more. If it wasn't possible, he would have never said, go and sin no more. But he said, go and sin no more. Psalm 101. I will behave perfectly or wisely in a perfect way. When will you come to me? I'll walk within my house with a perfect heart. I'll set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will never, I will not know wickedness. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I'll destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, I'll not endure in my presence. My, I, him I will not endure. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he will serve me. He who works deceit in my house um, will not dwell in my house. He who tells lies will not continue in my presence early i will destroy the wicked from the land that i may cut off the evildoers from the city of the lord so this shows you a huge part of living in victory over sin is your immediate company that you that you keep david constantly is saying i'm not going to endure this person i'm not going to allow this person in my circle of influence i'm going to boot them out because a righteous man should choose his friends carefully the proverb says the bible says he that walks with the wise shall himself become wise, but the companion of a fool will be destroyed. So pay attention who you surround yourself with. I mean, Paul dealt strongly with people that were screwing things up in the early church. He said, I handed over these people to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. He didn't tolerate evil people in his presence. I'm not saying never befriend a sinner again. But there's a difference between someone who's a sinner that leaves you alone and then someone who's wicked and is trying to encourage you to come and fall into that which God delivered you from. Let me repeat this. As I've said it many times on this broadcast, if you're not disgusted with sin, you'll never be delivered from sin. God will never deliver you, deliver you from a sin that you enjoy doing. And if you don't get delivered from sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So today, as you hear his voice, this is a sign for you. Cut that relationship out. This is a sign for you. You're looking for a sign? Turn the other way. Because if you go down this path, the Bible says in the way of the wicked is darkness and they don't even know what causes them to stumble. But if you'll switch off the broad way that leads to destruction and come into the life of the just, the Bible says the path of the just is like a shining sun that shines unto his perfect day. It shines brighter and brighter even unto the perfect day. So not only should you turn away from wicked company, get the word of God in your heart. That's another secret of dominion over sin. The word of God in your heart. I have hidden thy word in my heart that I may not sin against you. So your victory or your dominion over sin will be a direct reflection of the word content that you've stored up in your heart. If you have low word content, you'll have low fuel in life to actually, to, to, to actually stick in victory over sin. But if you have great word content, you know the word. 
then the devil's temptations, you'll cast them down every single time. I've hidden thy word in my heart. Your empowerment against sin, get this, your empowerment against sin is fueled by God's word. If you go time and time again without the word of God, you should have a daily study of the word of God, a daily time of taking in the fuel of God's word because that's what's going to guarantee that you endure trials and temptations. At the moment temptation comes, you don't entertain it, you cast it down, you, you kick it out. The fifth area is area of dominion, dominating the area of sin. If you're watching right now, and you, you're a captive to sin, sin has a rope on your neck. The Bible says a man's sins are like ropes that keep and catch him. Sin has had a rope on your, li- on your life and on your neck for years, and you've never been able to be set free. You've always been a slave to that thing, and you've tried counseling, you've tried uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, and you've tried every single human method there is to try and it's not helped you one bit it's only grown worse let me tell you spiritual curses and spiritual sins and spiritual problems cannot be helped or cannot be broken by natural means and methods you need to have the blood of jesus break those things off your life there's only one force that's strong enough to remove sin from you and that's the blood of jesus if you're watching now and you've never given your life to jesus you're watching now and and you you know that your life's not right with God. You know that you've been living a life away from God. And that you've, en- you've enjoyed it for a little while, but the s- sin has a pleasurable season, has a fleeting, pleasurable season. And for a little while you enjoyed it, but now sin has reared its ugly face. It finally revealed itself to be what it truly is, a cancer, a deadly force that causes problems and struggle and frustration in your life. I'm here to tell you, I'm not your worst enemy. I'm not here to beat you on the head. I'm here to say, the ark door is open. God's grace and God's mercy is open and and it's available to you today. That if you find yourself in the horrible ditch sin has dug up for you, you can take that nail-scarred hand that's reaching your way today, the hand of Jesus, grab on and He'll pull you out of the perilous pit and He'll sit you on the rock, the rock of His foundation. I want to ask you, has there ever been a time where you've put sin away from your life? That you've turned away and repented of sin and turned to God and asked Him for power to live a holy and godly life? If not, today's your day. Number two, if you have, but somewhere down the line, maybe you have given your life to Christ, but somewhere down the line, you you got into a bad relationship. Maybe it was a loss of a loved one, a tragedy that occurred in your life that turned you off from God. And you were like that seed that was on the shallow ground. You endured for a little while, but the moment troubles came because of the word, you immediately withered away. And your relationship with God is nowhere near what it used to be. Today's your day. You can have restored relationship with God. You can come back like the prodigal son. You can awaken yourself and say, man, I'm going to return to my father. And when you do, God will meet you, not with a beating, not with destruction, not with a ruler in his hand ready to slap you over the head. He'll meet you with what? His blessing. He'll meet you with a hand of grace, a hand of mercy. And and don't let the devil lie to you thinking that you'll never have what you used to have. You'll have more. God's calling your name today. If that sounds like you under those two categories and you want to make today the day, the day of salvation for you and the day where God begins to get to work on you and work His pleasure and His will through you, 
I want you to pray this prayer with me. You want to break free from sin today and turn to God. Pray this with me right now. Say, Father, in Jesus' name, I turn to you. I give you my life. I ask you, forgive me of my sin. By your blood, make me white as snow. I confess, Jesus is my Lord. For I believe that you raised him from the dead. I will live for him. My sins are forgiven. My past is dealt with. From today, I'm walking with you. Empower me by your spirit to live a holy life. And I'll never turn back. Not by my strength, not by my power, but by your spirit alive in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love for you to get in contact with me by going to salvationnow.ca. The first link that pops up is I just got saved. Fill it out. Get that form to me. Um, there's a link at the bottom of the YouTube pa- at the bottom of the page to a YouTube video. Watch the video. It's four basic instructions I would give you now that you've started a new life with Jesus Christ that'll help you to live in victory. Four basic things that every new Christian must know and every Christian must know in in general. They're going to greatly help you and assist you. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji or visit us online www.salvationnow.ca God bless you and until next time.